Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Today, I'm excited to sit down with Dr. Austin Perlmutter, who specializes in what he calls the science of stuck. His research and work centers around the thesis that modern culture is rewiring our brains and damaging our health in the name of profit. His New York Times bestselling book, Brainwash, offers a plan of resistance against this pervasive numbing championed by our society. Austin suggests that to rehabilitate our neuroplasticity, or our brain's ability to shift its response to our environment, we need to combat the isolation of our digital age and seek out time with other humans and time immersed in nature. He believes that through reconnecting with our community and ourselves, that we can reattune to our own consciousness and ability to sit in the driver's seat of our own health. Please welcome Dr. Austin Perlmutter. All right, Austin, thank you so much for joining me on the Sakara Life podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Danielle. So we like to start off with a question around your mission and what are you doing on earth? Like, what are you, what are you giving? What are you here to teach? What are you here to do? What, what motivates you and why are you in this work? What a good question. And I feel like for the next three hours, I'll try to cover that as best I can, <laughs> but... It gets to so many things as far as what drives a person. And I guess in this case, what drives me. We were talking before this episode about some things that we've shared as far as our exposure to the world of medicine. And obviously, we both cared about trying to help people. And medicine, conventional medicine, is one path that allows people to do this. But similar to you, I realized relatively early on that. We live in a society in which poor health, I wouldn't even say poor health, I'd say crappy health, is considered normal, is considered the expected outcome. And the worst part of it is that we just take for granted that there's nothing that can be done up until the point where we get a disease. And at that point, now you can take some drugs. Now you can go see your doctor. Now you can get a diagnosis. And so there are things that come next. And that sucks. I mean, it just, it's unsustainable. We've got the last several years, lifespan has dropped off. We know that people are increasingly suffering from, even if they're not dying from conditions that are preventable. And we know that the majority of people now have at least one aspect of metabolic dysfunction. So that is the context in which we exist, I think, in this realm of trying to hopefully help people. Where I've settled on for my mission is what I call helping people get the stuck out, basically getting unstuck. And the reason I describe it in that way is because regardless of how you think about what's going wrong in the world today, whether you want to think about socio-political issues, whether you want to think about the way that people interact with each other, 
or whether you want to think about what is happening, as I often do, at the level of our brain neurochemistry, we're getting stuck and rigid in patterns of action and thinking. And that is incredibly destructive, in part because the way that we're getting stuck is negative, it's unhealthy, it is what is driving us to be in a bad mental state, a bad cognitive state, and make poor decisions. And in part because this getting stuck piece actually limits our ability to see the bigger picture and make changes. The more stuck we get, the harder it is for us to make changes. So I've made it my mission to educate people on the cost-effective, readily available, and science-backed tools that can enable them to get this stuckness out. What are the things that each person can be doing to deprogram stuckness in their bodies and their communities on this planet so we can live more fulfilling lives of sustainable well-being? What does it mean to be stuck in your mind? Yeah, again, there are different levels at which we can talk about this. So I would look at conditions like depression and anxiety as kind of prototypical states or example states of stuckness. But I'd also look at patterns of destructive decisions as resemblance or basically representations of stuckness. Where I go a lot is not necessarily the psychology because there's some fascinating psychology around cognitive traps, biases, and things that can be an issue, but rather the neurobiology of this. And so we'll jump right into some heavy science here. When we're talking about stuckness in the brain, I'm looking at the immune system, specifically inflammation in the brain. I'm looking at neuroplasticity, which is the idea of our brain being rewired each day by our environments and how neuroplasticity can become problematic in the context of stuckness. I'm looking at hormones like insulin and cortisol. I'm looking at neurotransmitters and their receptors. And I'm looking at networks, so communication between various parts of the brain. And then I'm looking at what we can do to influence these things. Because again, what we see is when you look at the brains of people with a condition like depression or something like Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia, what you see is a lack of flexibility. You see things getting locked into these destructive patterns where if you were to look at the brain, you'd see a decrease in what is called, again, neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to both restructure its wiring and to form new brain cells. So again, there's a lot of biology here, a lot of neurobiology in particular. But the bottom line is, for these things that we see in society that are going wrong, where people feel increasingly disconnected from each other, where people feel increasingly disconnected from their health and from nature, there is a biological basis for this that can be traced to what is happening in the brain. It's so interesting because I think a lot of the diseases that you're speaking to right now are typically ones that people don't link to choice, that they don't link to lifestyle factors. And it sounds like you're linking them ultimately to inflammation in many cases. Can you talk a little bit about what inflammation is, especially in the brain? I think when people think of inflammation, typically like if you get a cut and you have redness and soreness, that's inflammation. And then all the way, some people might even go as far to say, you know, puffiness under the eyes, but like, what is inflammation of the brain? Yeah, well, so I think to the first part of your question, this idea that most of our diseases today are being driven by lifestyle is not really contested either in conventional medicine and certainly not in integrative circles. If you look at the top causes of death and disability around the world, 
These are chronic, largely metabolic, largely inflammatory diseases, heart disease, diabetes, many forms of cancer, but yes, also brain diseases. We now understand that dementia and mood disorders have lifestyle factors that map onto them. And one of the kind of cornerstones to this is this idea of inflammation. So certainly people have heard of this idea of inflammation being a bad thing. And the way most people interact with inflammation, maybe before they listen to a podcast or go on social media or Google it, is exactly what you already described. It's the cardinal symptoms of inflammation. It's the redness, it's the swelling, it's the pain, the lack of function. You know, it's basically you bump your elbow, it gets swollen and red. That is inflammation. Or you get a mosquito bite. That is inflammation. That's the first stage at which we need to think about it. This is what's called acute inflammation because it's what happens in the order of minutes to hours, maybe days after something triggers our body's immune system to say, this is a problem. We need to bring in the cavalry and bring in the white blood cells and basically wall this off, create a defense system, in this case it's inflammation, to deal with this threat. But where most of the research is focused as it relates to things like depression, as it relates to things like Alzheimer's disease and definitely heart disease and diabetes and obesity is chronic inflammation. So here we're talking not days, but rather months, years, and decades. And what's so important to understand about this is before we just villainize this term inflammation, if you didn't have inflammation, you'd die in a day because you need to kill off microbes that get into your body. The way you do this is by creating inflammation. Inflammation is a natural process of the immune system. That's really good. But it's at the extremes that we develop problems. And here, if you have too much acute inflammation, something like a cytokine storm, that was something that was seen in COVID, for example, that can be lethal. On the other hand, if you have low levels of inflammation chronically, which is what we see in these diseases, that can be lethal. So it's definitely not a thing where we say, just nix inflammation, suppress the immune system, that's no good. It's also not a scenario in which you want it to be all the time very high. You really just need it to be able to respond to what is going on in your environment. And I'll just take this one step further. I mean, this is philosophy here for a moment. All of us want to have easy solutions to complex problems, but it's been my experience. I don't know, Daniel, if this has been your experience, but the longer I live, the more I realize that part of the beauty of life is embracing the fact that there aren't really simple solutions to a lot of the more complex issues. Like if you think about being in a relationship with somebody that you care about, you like to think, oh, well, I get a girlfriend, a boyfriend, whatever, we're in love and things are great. And I have learned it is a complex dance, right? You're always learning. You're always deepening it. You've got to work at it. It's the things that matter the most that are going to require you to put in work and also that are nuanced. And so to take this back to the conversation, the first level is to say inflammation is a problem and to say we need to do something about it. But the next level is to say we don't just want to villainize the body because I think that creates its own issues to say, well, my body is inflamed or my body's autoimmune or whatever it might be and say, well, it's me against that. It's me against my immune system. This is about finding balance, homeostasis, a place in which it's dynamic and it allows us to be resilient against a wide range of things that may happen in our environment and not have to just sit inside and not participate. So maybe a little more than you were looking for there, but is no, inflammation a bad thing? It is in certain contexts, and that's the context that most people are experiencing today, which is chronic, sustained, low-level inflammation. 
yeah, out of balance, ultimately. I have so many questions, but I can understand what you're speaking to as what neuroplasticity is, you know, when we don't have it, what happens, but can you paint the other side of the coin for me? So like, is it normal to never have anxiety? Is it normal to like never have depressive? Like, like, what do you think is is the kind of ultimate? Yeah, it's a great question. And yeah, I love that you asked this because there are certain aspects of wellness culture that I don't love. And one of those is the idea that you should be happy 100% of the time every day and just living in a blissed out state. Yep. I don't think that's true, nor do I think it's desirable. We actually want some stress. Stress makes us stronger. Interestingly, stress makes plants stronger. So when we eat stress plants, it may make us stronger. But this is the whole idea of why people are talking about things like cold plunges and saunas and running long races. And I'm not saying you have to do any of those things, but the point is our bodies are designed to increase their resilience when they're exposed to stress. Now, there's the idea of eustress and distress. Eustress is positive stress. And kind of similar to inflammation, you just want this to be something that comes on in a not super intense way that you can deal with, and then you can move on. What you don't want is stress that comes on either in a really intense way that leads to long-term damage or that smolders under the surface for years, for decades. And that's really what is going to both contribute to inflammation and in and of itself lead to mental health problems. So anxiety is kind of an interesting in-between because you can have anxious symptoms. Anxiety in its most adaptive sense or positive sense is your brain telling you there is something in the future that you should probably be a little bit more concerned about, right? It's saying, hey, I know you're here trying to be mindful, trying to be in the present, but by the way, there's a hurricane on the horizon and maybe it makes sense to put up those shutters. That's anxiety in a practical sense. Where most people experience anxiety is instead just worrying about things that they're not able to do anything about. And that's where it becomes distress. That's where it becomes a scenario where you're basically occupying a good chunk of your brain's real estate concerned about things that you have no power to change. And that's really the chronic stress of the day. It's well, I'm worried about what's happening on my social media. I'm worried about what's happening at work. I'm worried about what's happening on the TV show. I'm worried about what's happening across the world in another country. I'm not able to do anything about it, but I am just going to sit here and perseverate on it. So to answer your question, there is, I think, in a balanced kind of homeostatic set point of life version of health, a need for stress. That is a good thing. But I think that need has to be itself balanced by the fact that when stress is too much or lasts for too long, then we start getting the long-term negative effects on our brain health and our overall health. And so what are some of the ways that you counteract the stuckness or the inflammation? And I think you have a really interesting perspective on it. So I would love for you to go into detail on, on the tools. Yeah. I think there are a lot of tools. I think by and large, the tools that I recommend for people to get unstuck or get the stuckness out are going to be the things people have, for the most part, heard about before. If you look at the evidence on what works for most people to improve their health, it tends to be the basics. That is the best studied stuff. So it's eating real food. It's getting sleep. It's exercising. It's spending time with friends and family. I'm not saying anything here that people won't have heard about before. I think there's some interesting nuance to it. And that nuance, let's just take, for example, dietary interventions as it relates to getting 
stuckness out. So I, you know, like you, really believe in the power of a whole food-based diet to dramatically transform health, physical health, mental health. Is there going to be a scenario in which a person will benefit from more tailored kind of food as opposed to just saying, don't eat so much processed food? Absolutely. It may not be available to everyone, and I want to be respectful of that, but there is data suggesting that certain nutrients in food may act on some of these pathways, inflammatory, neuroplasticity, hormonal. I'm currently in the process of doing research on a plant called Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which is really interesting because it has a ton of these polyphenols, which are these plant nutrients, which have kind of been looked at as throwaway molecules because, oh, they're antioxidants, but whatever. We now know these molecules can influence, again, neuroplasticity, inflammation, but also epigenetics, which is meaning they're changing the way our DNA is being read and used in our bodies, which is a crazy concept that plants can do this. And feed our gut microbes. Let's talk about that for a second. So big picture wise, most people, when they talk about food, they're just saying, okay, well, how many calories are in food? That's important. It's certainly not the whole picture. Then you say, well, I'm focusing on my macros. I want to nail my fat today. I want to nail my carbs. I want to nail my protein. Okay, that's great. It's great that you're taking more interest in it. And then we might get to micros. So vitamins, minerals. Oh, I want to get my vitamin B. Vitamin D is important. I need some zinc, some magnesium. And that's wonderful. But what people tend not to appreciate is that food is not just calories. It's not just macros and micros. It is information. It is data. And it is packed with all of these billions of bits of data that come into your body each time you take a bite of food. And a whole lot of those are not those macros and micros. They're what are called phytonutrients, or basically chemicals created by plants, of which we know there are thousands. These are nutrients that plants use to basically promote their resilience. And when we eat them, we gain some of that stress-fighting potential. But what you just said, which is so interesting, is so true, which is a lot of these molecules can't be absorbed directly by our bodies. So what happens is they get to the large intestine where our microbiome lives, the majority of our microbes, and they change the microbiome, meaning these nutrients can either increase the healthy bacteria or decrease the healthy bacteria, and the same thing with unhealthy bacteria. So they're actually kind of forming a healthy kind of impact on the microbiome themselves, and then the microbes can act on them metabolize them into new molecules that can be absorbed by our body, get into our bloodstream, influence our cells, go through the blood-brain barrier, and change our brain function. So this is a long-winded way of saying all of these things are connected, but you, you have to pay attention to your plants that you eat, and you have to pay attention to what your plants ate, which in this case is the soil they were raised in. And this is, so, you know, I, I have reverence for, <laughs> you know, science, Western medicine, if I, God forbid, get hit by a bus, that's where I want to go. But the problem with it is, by definition, the need for science to isolate really kind of takes away our entire understanding of food because the minute you isolate polyphenols from the food, you're no longer studying the food and what the food might actually do in the body. And it makes it really difficult to understand nutrition. And so what you just said we had no idea what polyphenols did. We still don't. And that's one type of molecule in a food. There might be billions of, you know, bits of data, as you called them, that we haven't even isolated yet. And we don't even know their function. I mean, I recall when they discovered the oligosaccharides in breast milk, it was a throwaway. It was like, oh, these don't mean anything. We don't need to put it in formula. 
turns out that was the food to cultivate a diverse and healthy microbiome. And so though I love nutrition science and I've studied it and I'm currently getting my master's in it, it's like I I still recognize the limitations and how we overcomplicate it by doing exactly what you did, the, the macros, the micros, instead of really looking to nature and doing what intuitively makes sense, whole food, plant rich diet, lots of diversity. And I think sometimes, and you said this before too, people don't want the simple answer. Like it's kind of boring, right? It's boring for us to be on this podcast, maybe saying, get more sleep, eat whole foods. I think Western medicine in particular has catered to our need for the simple answer, like the answer that can just come in a pill. And I get how it's seductive, but ultimately we always have to come back to the simple things that are actually the hardest to do. I think you're completely right. And I would say, I don't think it's just Western medicine. I think Western medicine is an outgrowth of a Western mentality that is Mm. kind of do nothing and then have a solution. Basically wait until all of a sudden you're overcome by some sort of a want as opposed to a real need and then try to fix that problem. And so, you know, if you look at how people spend their money and spend their time, it's a whole lot of impulsivity, right? So we're constantly craving the next dopamine hit, whether it's through social media or the food that we eat or the way that we interact with each other now. And that is a brain state and that is a kind of societal mentality that does not allow for much room for thoughtfulness and for nuance and for what we're talking about right now. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a podcast and been having this exact dialogue play out in my brain, which is, I'm going to tell you for the next 20 minutes why sleep is so important. But at the end of the day, people will say, okay, great, but what's the hack, right? So (laughs) how many milligrams of melatonin do I need to take per night? And exactly what level of high-intensity interval training is going to increase my brain-derived neurotrophic factor level? And I get it. I mean, I understand that those are the things that can punch through the noise and get somebody who maybe otherwise wouldn't have considered this stuff to be important to say, okay, well, you know, I know that inflammation is bad and and curcumin is going to fight inflammation. So as long as I take my turmeric each day, the loop is closed. But you're right in that, you know, if you were to say objectively, I think objectively, looking at the research as far as who are the people who do the best? And what are the variables that are associated with doing the best? You know, it's not the people who have taken some sort of a crazy exercise routine supplement, spent 40 minutes each day in an ozone sauna with red light therapy on. It's the people who do things in a balanced way. You know, it's not the people who work crazy jobs and then go home and power through 1800 supplements. It's people who eat real food and who are balancing their body with more than just a couple minutes of each day. I think that is in and of itself a tough pill to swallow in a society that wants to literally have its cake and eat it too. We all want to be able to do all the things that are unhealthy for our bodies and then know that we can come home and fix it with something that maybe it's expensive, but it offsets our poor health. And I see this all the time where the emphasis is on the hack as opposed to the real thing. The real thing in this case being eating actual food, getting actual sleep, is going for a walk. You can't buy your way out of those things. You've got to actually do them. Yes. This leads me to so many questions, which is where I think you 
So interestingly, Sit, I have this theory and it's not new. I'm sure many people have this theory too, but we're getting now to a place where we're really understanding that our lifestyle habits greatly impact health outcomes. Great. Now, where I think you kind of bring in this spiritual aspect is what I think the future of medicine has to be and I hope is trending, which is understanding that my connections to the people around me, my connection to nature, my connection to spirituality or my purpose is not an outcome of health. It is an integral part of my health outcome. And they're interdependent, as you articulated earlier. They all matter. It's not one than the other. I hope that when people start to talk about health and vitality, it's like we've had a decade of really focused on, you know, food. And I'm so grateful. And I think a lot of that is because of the science behind the gut. And I think it's an easier way for people to link health outcomes to food because you think of gut and food where people might have a hard time understanding brain health and food. But then if you can always link it to the gut, it makes more sense for people. You talk about, you know, being out in nature and the studies behind how important that is, like the difference between exercising in nature and exercising inside. What are some of those ways that you kind of help people get unstuck? And I call them more spiritual decisions. Sure. Yeah. Well, Danielle, I appreciate you asking this question. And one of the things that I think needs to be said more often is you can optimize your sleep, your diet, your exercise. And you can still just be miserable. And I think one of the main reasons for that is, you know, we are more than just optimizing biological variables within a system. If we were, we'd basically be robots and say, okay, well, you have your adequate nutrition, you have adequate hours of sleep, and you exercise for adequate numbers a day. Why aren't you happy? Why aren't you feeling fulfilled? And I think the variable there, I mean, I guess there are many ways to slice this, but what gives meaning, purpose, and value to our lives is our interconnection with both people and with nature, I would say. And I think that's something that is quite explicitly falling off the side of the map as it relates to what we're seeing, especially in our younger generations where people are spending so much time on their screens and are increasingly disconnected from the natural world. I mean, certainly affects our generation as well. But that's the aspect of it that all the biohacking and all the nutrition stuff just cannot quite address. And that's why I think it's so important that we talk about food, not just in the context of the nutrients, but rather in the context of you know this system and data flow from which food comes, which is to say, yeah, it's great that you care about eating food with fiber and without added sugar. There needs to be a point at which we care about the farmers that that food came from and the soil where that food was raised. Did you know that the microbiome of the soil dramatically changes the nutrient content of the food that you eat? And so whether a farm is designed in a way that that soil is healthy with its microbiome, or if it's dysbiotic, a term from humans that still applies to the soil, it will change the nutrient content of those plants. And whether it's a plant or a human that eats them next, their health as well. And so I think ideally where we can go in the kind of Maslow hierarchy of health is to appreciate that our health is a reflection of the health of our larger community. And then it's just a question of how big do you want that circle to go? I totally get that when you are the person who is struggling with a health problem, 
that circle is really small. It could be even the organ in your body that's going wrong, but then it's just you. It's you feel like you have the issue. As health gets a little bit better and as perhaps we're more integrated into community, it's a circle of people around you that are participant in this. And so it's, hey, you know, I'm in this group of people and we all exercise or we all try to avoid refined carbohydrates or, you know, we're all willing to be the weirdos and ask whether the food that we're eating has added sugar in the restaurant. And as you expand that out a little bit bigger, and one of the benefits of social media is you create a community of people who actually care about stuff that matters to health. But the fundamental aspect of this, which I guess gets to the spirituality piece of it, is to kind of ask this question of, well, what are we doing here? What's our goal with this? And yeah, it's important to be a healthy person. It's important to think about how things like diet and exercise map onto mental health. But this idea of a binary happy or unhappy that is somehow a direct reflection of you ate the food, you got the sleep, therefore happy is just, it doesn't work that way. So it is one of the reasons I think we're seeing kind of a resurgence of the commune style model of people wanting to get together. And, you know, it's not necessarily productivity in the same way as maybe what people have been focused on for the last couple of decades. It's being in community and sharing certain aspects of what it means to be human And if you can do that along with the other aspects of health, then that's amazing. But I think to your point, you know, this isn't some sort of a separation that is part and parcel of what it means to be really healthy is to be embedded in something bigger than yourself, to be connected with something bigger than yourself. And just as a last kind of tangent here, we can get into what it represents in the context of plant nutrients, in this case, maybe more fungal nutrients, but One of the outgrowths of the renaissance in conversations around psychedelics now is that piece of community and appreciation of this connection with nature and with other people. And whatever a person's opinions of psychedelics might be, I think that is an amazing thing, which is that people have increasingly been willing to talk about aspects of what it means to be human that aren't just a question of where is your lab today, right? Is your CRP elevated or low? Is your hemoglobin A1C high or low? It's looking at aspects of what it means to be spiritually connected, which in the case of psychedelics tends to be a pretty strong outcome of their use in the right set and setting. So this is a big conversation, but I think it is the hidden agenda or the hidden education that underlies what it means to really bring health up to the next level in the next couple of decades. It's removing those artificial barriers from separation, and it is integrating us back into nature and community. Nature has no incentive to keep us anxious, stressed, or distracted. And I think that's so important, which is as much as there is amazing stuff being done by humans, There are so many hidden agendas and incentives out there, marketing efforts to try to convince us to feel bad about ourselves so we have to buy a product. And nature has no hidden agenda, right? It is just there. It has no intent to do one thing or another with you. And people in general, when they spend more time in nature, are happier and they're healthier. And what I love most about it is it's largely free. You get a dose of vitamin N by going outside, even if you're in an urban environment, But it is a democratization of one of kind of the essentials of health, which is engagement with exposure to nature. And it's this coming home to we are nature. I think we've quite literally forgotten 
that we are nature and we keep trying to hack her. (laughs) We're just so far behind. I do think nature is unhackable in a way. And so to like come home to that, yeah, remembering that we are of it, it reminds me of Marion Williamson we had on the podcast and she talked about how we're all walking around like we're waves, individual waves, forgetting that we're actually the ocean. And I think about this, I'm going to try and connect these two. (laughs) I might need your help. But so there's that thought, right, of where I can easily forget that every decision every human makes on this planet impacts me. And, you know, it might be so subtle, I'll never, ever know. That's most things. And then there's big things like, you know, decisions that the EPA makes, decisions that my government makes, decisions that my kid's school makes, but just how we're all so interconnected. Mm. But then on the other side, when you forget that, you make decisions for the self alone. When you feel like your decisions are only going to impact you or your family or your loved ones, forgetting that deciding what you eat impacts everyone. Deciding which farmers you're going to support impacts everyone. Then on the other side of this is this very real conversation of access. And I firmly believe that organic, beyond organic, all the way to regenerative is a basic human right, like access to this food. And I run into people who have really strong opinions, especially on social media. When I say things like this, I just had a rant recently where I had a friend whose husband was recently diagnosed with colon cancer and it really shocked her. He's in his forties. And she said to me, she's like, you know, you're so into this health stuff. And now I'm really obsessed with like glyphosate and the impact of toxins in my environment. So just like, tell me what to do. I I know you've been talking about all this stuff for a long time and I've known about it, but now I'm just ready. And this is so linked to your point about why do we have to wait until we're in emergency mode Mm. to take action against our health? And so, you know, my rant was about take action now. If you feel bad, okay, great, still do something right now for your health before it's an emergency. And, you know, I talked about eating organic, blah, blah, blah. And Then people came at me about access and I'm like, this is still the truth, even if people don't have access. So instead of changing the truth and saying, ah, okay, you're right. That's not fair to say because not everyone has access to this food. Like that is not what I want to do. I want to change the system so that everyone has access to this food. Instead of changing the truth, I want to change the system. But I think people have a hard time and to try and bring it back, I think it's because we forget that we're the ocean, not the Mm. wave. Yeah, you said a lot of beautiful things that definitely I I resonate with. There are a couple of concepts I guess I would float. One is inertia, and that's coming off of what you just described, which is it, it looks a number of different ways. But when you have billions of people on the planet who are embedded in a system that wants to sustain itself, then anything you do say or believe that is outside of the status quo is always going to be pulled back towards the ground. And that helps to explain, I think, your point. I'm cognizant of this too. So if I could, I would eat everything organic all the time. I don't. And partially it's because it's crazy expensive to get certain things fully organic, like 
find reasonably priced organic almond butter and then let me know where that's being sourced from. And partially it's just that I don't always prioritize it. So if I'm at a restaurant or something, I'm definitely not going to force them to tell me if every ingredient is organic. But is organic something I would like to do all the time? Yes, it is. And is it expensive and cost prohibitive for most people? Yes, it is. It doesn't mean that it isn't best. And I think it's that. It's the yes and. Yes, it is what is best. And it's not possible for everyone that we have to be able to tolerate. So the inertia piece, I think, is important, which is if you are advocating for something that is not the status quo in a scenario where inertia is as powerful as it is, you should expect to be labeled a weirdo, a heretic, or otherwise. That That is what is going to happen. And I talk about this a lot as far as being comfortable being seen as a weirdo. Because if you are somebody who is pursuing health in a age, in a society in which poor health is the default, you will be seen as branded as a weirdo. And you have to take that as a badge of honor because it means you're not willing to accept the default option. My friend Pilar Gerasimo has a book called The Healthy Deviant where she talks about this. But two concepts there. The other piece that I wanted to mention, which you brought up at the start is you had your friend's husband who had a diagnosis and now all of a sudden your friend says, hey, tell me everything. And I can't even say how many times that's been a similar scenario in my life where you have people who either kind of shun the idea of alternative medicine or food as medicine until all of a sudden it's, I need to do something. And hey, you've been in this crazy realm for a few years. What do you think I should do? Meanwhile, a couple of years ago was, what is this nonsense you're putting out? So that gets to the concept of why a person changes their mind or does something differently. And I think at a very basic psychological level, we do things based on how much pain it causes us. And so once the pain threshold gets to a certain level, it forces us to at least be open to making a change. There's also when things change. So for example, if you move to a new town, you have more openness in your brain to create new habits. So I think that's important too. But the pain piece is really key. When pain reaches a critical threshold, our bodies cannot continue to do that thing without at least examining other options. If you're sitting on a hot stove and it gets painful, you will move. And so sometimes that comes in the context of a disease. Sometimes it comes in the context of a person you know suffering from disease. Sometimes it comes from basically just being so psychologically fed up with the way that you feel or the way your life is going that you're willing to make a change. But what I think is so dangerous about where we've landed as a society is that we have come up with some of the most effective mind-numbing medications known to man. And I'm not talking about pharmaceuticals, I'm talking about where we spend our focused hours of the day looking at our screens. So instead of getting to the point of saying, I'm bored and I need to do something differently, maybe I'll go for a walk. Or instead of getting to the point of saying, you know, I really would love to go make some new friend connections. Or saying, you know, I'm really sick of eating the same meal day in and day out, I'm gonna go out and try to cook something new. We just go on social media or we just go on our TV and watch Netflix. And so that numbs the pain. So we postpone having to do anything differently and the years go by without anything changing. So it's almost like we've taken our most valuable resource, which is our brain state, our thinking. And we basically said, I'm going to take that out, put it aside so that I don't have to deal with that anymore. I don't want to be bored and have to come up with some creative way to spend my day. I'll just go on social media. I don't want to have to think about the job that I hate and what it would look like to change that job. I'll just watch TV. 
and the years go by, the decades go by, and before you know it, nothing changes. So I think that's kind of this really insidious thing that is happening across society right now where it's just a numbing state that doesn't get us to the pain threshold where we're willing to make the necessary changes to have better lives. That's really powerful. And I've never heard it articulated so clearly. And yeah, I was going to ask you, you talk about like mental hijacking. So is like that what you're referencing when you talk about mental hijacking? Those mental states we would have noticed before we don't notice anymore. Right. Well, I think attention capture has gotten much better. And there are a number of reasons for that. But the fundamental reason for it is if you consider where money is made in the largest amounts, then you can pretty much follow where the most intelligent decisions and highest level of technological advancement are going to be found. In the case of marketing, we're talking about, in essence, capturing human psychology in a way that forces us to make decisions that I shouldn't say forces, that entices us to make decisions that we may not have otherwise made. Where things get challenging for me, in part, I can say, look, I can educate an adult and say, listen, you are having your decisions changed by the commercials you watch on TV. You know, that's why they're there. They're trying to increase your likelihood of buying a toaster or a burger from a fast food restaurant or something else you don't need or that's bad for you. Fine. But even though those techniques have gotten better and even though they've become a whole lot more personalized. And even though they're using things like AI to target you online based on where you've been recently, I can handle that because we're adults. And that's kind of part of what it means to be an adult is to have to come into these systems and make your own decisions. But the part of it that I can't handle is the fact that we're seeing millions of dollars each year, far more than that actually, explicitly targeting children to co-opt their thoughts in order to get them to become hooked on foods and products that will set them up for a lifetime of poor health. And what I will tell people is, you know, because people will say, oh, well, yeah, I guess we shouldn't be marketing the latest unhealthy cereal to children. I guess it's a problem that up until recently, the majority of schools in the United States had a contract with a soft drink manufacturer. What, what I tell them is, there's a reason you don't let a 12-year-old drive a car or make decisions about where they want to live, it's because the brain hasn't developed to the point where we think that is reasonable. And yet we think it is reasonable to subject kids to advertisement, to marketing that we know has an effect on how they perceive goods, not just now, but for the rest of their lives. There's data showing that kids as young as pre-K and kindergarten have their preferences for food substantially changed by watching commercials on TV. And we also know that a person's preferences are ingrained early in life. So if you, as a kid, are exposed to marketing that creates a desire for unhealthy foods, which, shocker here, the majority of marketing to kids is for unhealthy foods, you have a preference for those foods later in life. It's associated with a feeling of comfort. So whether it's a cartoon tiger or a toucan, just to use some hypothetical examples, you will gravitate towards those food products later in life, even though those are among the worst foods from a nutrition perspective for your health. So that's part of what I'm describing here as far as a mental hijacking, which is that these marketing messages are by and large for unhealthy foods. They do change our brains and they really do a number on us when we're exposed to them as kids. And that is an unregulated scenario in the United States as far as we don't really put a cap on whether kids are or not available to see these types of ads. There's been some work that's been done. It's been kind of pushed back. But if you're a kid, let's just say it again, there's a reason why breakfast cereals have colorful cartoon mascots. It's not for the parents 
parent could care less whether that tiger's on the box of cereal unless they were exposed to it as a kid. I mean, I could cry on this topic. It's so heartbreaking. And yes, I notice a couple of things. One, you can't even, I have two small children. I can't even take them to the grocery store anymore because they're marketed to in the grocery store too. You know, all those cereals are at just the perfect height for them to see. And like, how could they not want the colorful thing? And it's a really hard discussion to have at this age. And I don't want to villainize foods, but there are villain foods. And so like, I personally have a, maybe I don't have a hard time, but it's something I think about a lot. I want my kids to have a healthy relationship to food. I want them to understand our bodies are powerful. Like we can have that cereal sometimes and still end up okay, but it's what we do the majority of the time. You know, it's it's a really nuanced conversation for an adult, much less a child. And then the other part of that conversation that makes me want to just like scream is how schools handle this. We do a lot of work with New York City public schools to get more whole food meals as lunch options. Like we help the city design recipes. We educate classrooms. And I actually think public schools are doing better than private schools in Manhattan. I mean, I am advocating so hard in our school to just have some standards. (laughs) They'll follow the allergens because allergens are serious. But even when I present clinical studies that show the impact of food dyes, of pesticides, herbicides on brain development, like we know these foods have an impact. We know that, you know, highly ultra processed foods have an impact on the liver, on blood sugar. And there's evidence. We're not taking action because it's so politicized, because it's hard to wrap your brain around. Like, I don't know what it is, but... I'm at a loss. If you have tips, I literally just took the administrator of our school grocery shopping to like show her one, how hard it is to find good foods. I get it. It's really hard Mm -hmm. that are easy for the teachers to do, but also to walk her through like there are options that are at least better than the ones we're giving our kids. Yeah, it is a challenge. I see some signals that are positive. We were on a uh, campaign call with Eric Adams one time, like a Zoom call dinner, and he was pretty dialed in on it, which was awesome to see. Yeah, he is. So this, I think, speaks to something that has a slightly technical term, delayed discounting or temporal discounting. But Mm. it's kind of, can we delay long-term better goals? You know, or basically, can we postpone gratification, right? So can we delay what we want now so that we can get something better later. And I think that it's kind of a reflection of impulsivity. So why this is relevant is our ability to delay discounting is important for adults' decision-making around can they choose healthier foods over unhealthier foods. And what's super interesting is now there's data suggesting that our modern-day lifestyles are compromising this, meaning things like inflammation may actually change brain function such that we're no longer as competent as far as delaying discounting. Nature seems to have the opposite effect for whatever it's worth, seems to help us to make more long-term oriented decisions. But as it relates to how we make these decisions, I think it's really important to understand that humans have a very hard time understanding the power of compounding interest of decision-making. So compounding interest is probably one of the most powerful kind of ideas in the realm of investing because it shows how money 
left to its own devices with interest rates being whatever they are over time has the opportunity to double in something like 10 years. But as it relates to dietary choices, to health in general, we all of us seem to want to have direct correlations between what we do now and how we feel in 10, 20 minutes. And so presenting adults with data that shows that over a multiple decade timeframe, kids who eat a more ultra-processed diet are at higher risk for diseases, you need them to understand that the way that this works is biologically through compounding effects right on our target tissues. It's through the buildup of liver fat. It's through adipocyte signaling. It's through brain rewiring. That's not getting in the New York Times. That's not getting in whatever the Daily Mail is. It's not an exciting story. Even though I don't think the news is always a great way for us to get information, the news is a reflection of the way our brains process data. And so if you're looking at a school administrator, to get them excited about something like this, I would almost go through the psychological process of saying, is this something that would be in the newspaper and would get people's interest in that way? Because if it isn't, all the data in the world isn't going to change somebody's mind. So mm. the last thing I'll just say there so is, true. I did a lot more consulting. Now I'm pretty much full-time with this group, but we do a lot of work trying to understand consumer psychology and how neuroscience maps onto the way people make decisions. And one of the kind of pretty obvious takeaways, but important, I think, maybe for the context you're describing is people make decisions based on how they feel, not based on data. And that's a tough thing to wrap your head around if you have any sort of a scientific background. The majority of people will make decisions based on what they feel, not based on the available data. So if you're looking at what is going to convince somebody to change policy in a school, it may not be the 45 meta-analyses looking at dietary quality for kids and long-term health effects. It may be the story of a kid who developed a disease because they were eating school food or the kids who lost weight in schools because they were eating healthier foods. You've got to associate a intervention with a felt state outcome to get most people to feel like that's something worth pursuing. Because once you tether the emotion to it, all of a sudden it's that charge that actually changes people's next steps. Not that many people run off of the brain charge component of it. Meaning you and I could have an incredibly intellectually stimulating conversation here. And maybe there's some aspect of it that somebody will hear and say, you know, I wasn't aware that polyphenols and the concentrations found in Himalayan tartary buckwheat could modulate the gut microbiome and therefore improve my epigenetic function. I want to go eat some. Okay, great. <laughs> You're like the one person on earth. But if you're resonating with the fact that, oh my God, our kids are being poisoned by their lunches at schools and they're now unhappy because of it. They're developing higher rates of diseases and they're feeling sad. Don't you feel sad for these kids? That is a, a very different sentiment that maybe can build up some of that energy that can actually lead to change. So yes, you need some science. You've got to be based in science, but I think it's finding those opportunities for people to resonate with stories. So mm. a couple of different concepts there to play with. Everything from temporal discounting to how our cognition works around emotional state, but so good. it's tough to change people's minds, I guess is the bottom line. It is, but I love that that tip. And I know that to be true even in what I do now. You know, when I tell people about the science behind diversity of plants equals diversity of microbiota, I'm like, okay, you know. But when I, you know, tell a story about how a woman came to us with lupus and had tried the drugs and, 
you know, it wasn't until she was with us for three months that she started to feel like herself and with her doctor's help slowly teetered off her drugs. And now she's really just using food to help keep lupus in check. And what that's done to her life and to how she feels is, it's motivating for me. And even though I already know it and I know the science. So yeah, it's such a good reminder that the stories are what move us. And back to one of your original points, this idea that we are social beings stuck on an iPhone, isolated in a room by ourselves is, yeah, maybe kind of one of the cornerstones of why we're even having this conversation. (laughs) That's true. This has been beautiful. I could talk to you forever. Thank you for all the work that you do. It's inspiring and beautiful. And we have a value here at Sakara Life. It's called Science and Spirit and just understanding the importance of the balance between the two, that there's a limit to science and what science knows and that the blend between the things that we can really start to understand mixed with the mystic and the things that we can't understand but can just feel that that's where we kind of all need to live. So thank you. You you do that balance so beautifully. Last question is around light work. So what's some homework, light work that everyone listening can do to, to maybe start to apply some of these concepts to their own lives? Yeah, I'm going to say something, I guess, that I haven't usually said. Usually I talk about, well, sleep is super important or here's what you can do for your diet. But I, I want to stay on the theme that we had kind of closed off on, which is how you find your energy and how you sustain that energy for change over time. Because what we've seen is, you know, we're all more isolated. We all feel like we've kind of, I think, have kind of fallen out of many of us, this state of connection that drives us, that gets us excited about the day where we feel like we're contributing to something bigger than ourselves, where we feel like we're moving forward. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to for whom this is the case. If it isn't you, then great. I'm super happy for you. But that feeling of life force, of energy, is so important to cultivate. And it can come from another a number of sources, right? It can come from spending time with friends, family. It can come from eating a delicious meal, going out into nature. But I think I would have people reflect on, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably care about your health. And you probably care about the health of the people around you. This is what's going to allow you to continue to maintain those powerful relationships. You want the people around you to be healthy. So maybe go into feeling what that feels like, your care for yourself, for your own wellness, for the wellness of the people around you and feel why that's important to you. And let that help power you to what I said before, which is embrace being a deviant, a weirdo, somebody who is seen as different in a world in which being normal is sick. And I think that that is an energy that is something that I try to run off of a good amount because when you do stuff that other people disagree with, you're going to get flack and pretty quickly you're going to be having to deal with the fact that, I don't know, it feels difficult. I guess that's maybe the easiest way to describe it. Why would you not want to watch the same junk as everyone else, eat the same junk as everybody else? Stop being such a sore thumb, right? But so I guess to put this into the more succinct version of this, take energy out of realizing that you are defecting from an unhealthy society. And that is the only solution where the norm is to be an unhealthy person. And you've got people out there. I know, I think, Danielle, I'll speak for you. You're part of that crew. There are a lot of people out there who are part of that mission. And so I guess feel that energy and let that power you and see how that can 
energize you for the coming weeks and months. Beautiful. Love that. Yeah. I could not agree more. It is beautiful light work. Thank you so much for joining us today, Austin. I, I really appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A.com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.